Hi, I'm Peyton Luke and welcome to First Liberty Live. Thank you for liking and sharing our videos. We really do appreciate it. Stuart Shepard was on the road recently at a gathering of national leaders who are experts in many different areas. We're sharing the interviews that he collected as a special summer series that we're calling Leading the Way. This time, he's talking to the new head of the Heritage Foundation. Kevin Roberts is leading the way to better public policy outcomes in Washington, D.C. Kevin, thank you for making time for us today. It's a real pleasure to be here. Why is religious freedom so important to America? Well, as all of you at First Liberty say, it is the first liberty. In other words, if something happens to that particular freedom, even for someone who isn't a person of faith, they would have no expectation that any of the other freedoms would be protected. But beyond that, on the positive side, we know that societies that are flourishing are societies with a lot of people of faith who are practicing their, their faith, not just in church and home, but out in civil society, in America in particular, as George Washington would remind us if he were still around, it's essential for a free people. The, uh, before you headed up Heritage, you've been there about, what, a year and a half now? Um, and this is before your previous job, but you headed up a college in Wyoming that had a little run-in with the federal government. Tell me about what happened, what they wanted you to do, and what your response was. Well, we did have a run-in with the government, which prompted two responses from us, which might be a good lesson for people who are, have a run-in with the government, is punch them back twice, not just once. Yeah. And the first was, because of the Obamacare contraceptive mandate, we couldn't comply as a faithful Catholic college. I, as a, as a Roman Catholic, heading a, a faithful Catholic college, simply could not comply. And so we joined as co-plaintiffs with Little Sisters of the Poor, who are, of course, wonderful lead plaintiffs. Every time I covered that story, I said, we just want to say out loud as many times as we can, little sisters of the poor, because it sets up the whole case. Why did they ever challenge that group? I don't know, but that's where it ended up. It's one of the, one of the few times in the last 20 years the left has made a serious tactical error. <laughs> Usually they're really good with their tactics. Because every headline is bad for their side. Comple yeah, comp right. Yeah. So uh, we joined with them, and we beat them, and so we didn't have to comply. And so any institution of faith was protected by that. And then that kind of wet our whistle, if you might say, and we had the opportunity as a new college to then receive student loans and grants from the federal government. And I went to my board and I said, you know, I think this is a really bad idea, so let's not comply or let's not participate. Yeah. And we didn't. And the students have benefited. The New York Times went out and tried to do an expose on us by interviewing all of the students and all of the faculty. <laughs> I told the reporter, I said, you have free reign of this campus. Come back at the end of the day and let me know what you learned. He came back and begrudgingly he said, you know, Kevin, they all agree with you. And I said, I don't need them to agree with me. I need them to be willing to fight for what's right. And to this day, Wyoming Catholic College doesn't receive student loans or grants. How does that work out in a practical way? Because people hear that and everybody always, the first thing they think of, they hear college, they think loans and grants and all that. How do you do it without that? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that it actually lowers tuition. So when you cut the middleman out huh. and you're, you're in this conversation with individual students or their parents, and you're realizing that there's a gap, students can get a particular job. Thankfully, since, since I left, the college has made great strides in finding a third party that can come in and offer a private loan at better rates than what the government does, and that's between them and the student. You know what the default rate is at Wyoming Catholic College? Uh -uh. One, not 1%, one percent, one student in wow. all of those years because of the, the commitment that people feel, the obligation. And, and certainly there have been some graduates who have fallen on tough times and they work with that lender, but they make the ironclad commitment they're gonna pay back that loan. First Liberty Institute just a year ago won a case, Carson v. Macon. It's out of Maine and it dealt with a school choice program. And basically we were saying, if, if the government's going to offer a program, they need to offer it to everybody. They can't deny a school 
because they have, in this case, a, a Christian foundation. How does that play into what you were just talking about? Is that a reasonable solution from where you stand? <laughs> well, the reasonable solution is that there's a level playing field for any student. And, and if I may back up a step and just say sure. that in education, every dollar ought to follow every child to the school of his or her parents' choice. Say that loudly over and over and over again, because I agree with you 100%. Which means that if that school of the parents' choice is a school of faith, then even if it's quote-unquote public money, it ought to go there because yeah. that ultimately is the taxpayer's money. And, and as long as that school is, is reputable and, and meets some criteria for accreditation, either according to the state or, or to the local officials, and they're being fair and they're subscribing to this mentality of mm -hmm. true equality and fairness, then that's an education system that I think all Americans could believe in. And, and it, the, what makes it okay is the parents make the choice of where the kids are going. That's what America is based on, and I have plenty of, of friends who are, are not as serious about their faith as you and I are. Obviously, I respect that. I wish that maybe, you know, they might grow in the faith as, as I did when I was younger. Yeah. But even for them, that choice, of course, creates better educational options. And I think the amazing thing for those of us who are right of center politically is that this isn't just a winning issue. It is the winning issue. This is how you build coalitions at the state level and as I think we will see next year at the federal level. Okay, your office is right down the street from the Supreme Court of the United States. And in, in recent months, we've seen senators stand out front, including the Senate Majority Leader, stand out in front and literally threaten the justices. Uh, he backed off of that later, but he said it loudly on the steps of the Supreme Court. We've seen other highly elected, official, high elected officials uh, stand there and call the court illegitimate. We've seen protesters marching in front of their houses. From your office, as you look at that, what do you make of the current temperature of the rhetoric in D.C.? What, what are we seeing here? Well, let me just say that from, from my office, from the Heritage Foundation, you can see the, the rear part of the Supreme Court building. And, and on those days with those protests, you could just step one step outside and hear them all. And so some of my colleagues were out there recording that ridiculous footage. Yes between what was going on on the steps of the court and of course what was going on outside the homes of the conservative justices themselves, those two things are reprehensible. You know, when a member of the, Supreme, uh, of the United States Senate is talking about in very thinly veiled terms, conducting violence, conducting threats against any official, whether they be a conservative Supreme Court official or a liberal Supreme Court justice, we ought to find that reprehensible. And so we really do have to lower the temperature in this country. And, and ironically, the first step of lowering that temperature is for the radical left to know that millions of conservatives will stand up. We will show up peacefully, nonviolently, not screaming, just being present. In other words, Stuart, the real lesson from that is don't concede the public square. Show up with smiles on your faces, and that's going to win the day. We're seeing a lot of headlines right now that, that talk about ethics charges. We're going to have to do ethics investigation. We're going to have to pass legislation about ethics at the Supreme Court. When people read those headlines, hear those stories, how should they hear them? What filters should they hear them through? Well, they should hear them through one, which is that none of those ethics or claims about ethical violations have come from media focused on left of center Supreme Court justices. Yeah, I noticed that. And, and when a couple of my colleagues at Heritage and, and thankfully some other journalists as well started poking around some of the liberal justices, some of this conversation sort of got quiet. And the reality is that there probably isn't a whole lot of to worry about there at all. But to the extent that you see it covered in the media, this is the important thing to remember. 
it's entirely biased. It's totally focused on the conservative justices. Heritage Foundation covers a lot of territory, so I'm going to ask you about a couple different topics. Uh, for better or worse, most of us get a lot of our information from social media now. We may not even realize how much news that we're taking in through posts that other people put on social media. But the table has been tilted against conservative viewpoints. How do we effectively express a conservative point of view when social media outlets, most of them anyway, are tilted against us from the get-go? I think there are at least three things that come to mind. We try to practice this at Heritage, and, and we're imperfect at it. I know that I am, but the, these, these are three good guidelines. The first is, of course, have your facts ready to go. Make sure that you know the facts. Yeah. They're relevant to the case. But the second is, almost as important as facts, and in sometimes, for some cases, even more important than the facts themselves, is appealing to emotions. By that, we don't want to say that we want to have these political conversations with no facts whatsoever. But, you know, the, the, the ancient Greeks, as a, as a student of, of rhetoric, would remind us to step into the, the feet or, or the perspective of your audience and think about what they need to hear in order to get them interested. In other words, for them to receive the facts. And, and we try to do that at Heritage. This is what we call putting a human face on the facts. But then the third thing is, which is really disarming for members of the left, I do this with unfriendly members of the press, yeah. is to ask questions. And, and, and not leading questions, you know, we don't have to be manipulative with them, but ask questions about the claims that they're making. And in particular, the, the, the foundational ideals that those claims rest upon. And sometimes, sometimes, you can end up having a really good conversation, conversation that persuades people to our side when we do that. I get the sense that you're thinking about a particular interview when you bring that up. What are some questions we could ask to help drive people to the truth? Uh, the, the, the first would be, for me, it's easier to answer that question by thinking about a particular policy topic. And right. so I'm often engaged in K-12 or, or higher ed uh, education policy topics. Yeah. And so sometimes people will make the claim school choice is actually harms public schools. And so I'll say, well, are you familiar with how public schools are funded in your state? Usually the answer is no, but if the answer is yes, well, then I will ask them. And again, in a friendly way, I'm not putting you on the spot, yeah. but just, just explain that for me. And then not to belabor the, the point here, but then you go through a series of questions and they realize, oh, this mechanism of an education savings account in, in this particular case, or ending the accreditation cartel for, for universities and colleges, it doesn't do what, what, what they claimed, but you let them reach that conclusion because otherwise the conversation comes to an end. One of the, the things that I've been teaching my young person at my house, uh, who's just graduated from high school, is when you look at liberal policies, when you look at the goals, they're often laudable. They look worthy, but when they implement the actual policies, often as not, they make things worse. When you take conservative policies, they actually deliver many of the promises that they present to you. When you think of the world in that way, how do you think we should be talking to the young people in our lives to help them see that? I think. What I've learned, to some extent, the hard way, and, and by that I mean sometimes I've led with facts or I've sounded like the guy that I am, the middle-aged bald guy, <laughs> talking to the younger audience. But what I've learned from them is, so say people 30 and younger in particular, lead with authenticity. Don't, don't try to be someone you're not. Be who you are. It's okay. I mean, it's okay that I'm a middle-aged bald white guy, but I'm talking to you, and, and I want to lead with that authenticity. And secondly, also lead with the, the, the diagnosis that they have very little reason to trust institutions in the United States. Very few institutions are any longer laudable. 
And that's something we ought to lament. It's also something we need to be working on. But I found when I lead with that, then we can have a conversation about anything. So some of these younger crowds talk to me about Heritage's position on abortion or Heritage's position on marriage or on legalizing drugs, which we think is a deplorable idea. Mm. We can have a conversation rather than an argument if they know, I'm, I'm going to listen. And, and then we're going to get into facts, and then I'm going to listen again, and it creates what we might call a conversation, which we need more of. Uh, let's apply that to the school choice argument you mm -hmm. were just talking about. What options do you think parents ought to have that would help bring some balance to the environment we're in right now? Well, I, I think that every single child, so every single family in this country, from blue states to red states, ought to go to the school of his or her parents' choice. If that is a different public school, because it has a different program, or it's easier for mom, who might be a single mom, to get little Johnny to school or back and spend more time with him, which of course is a, is a really important goal, great. If it's a private school, private school of faith, great. If it's a private school of no faith, great. Ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm with Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln and the founders who said, the best hope for America is the American people. And to paraphrase them, I trust the American people to make decisions for the most precious gift in their lives, which is their children. Liberals, conservatives, people in the center believe that. So this is what at Heritage we believe. Two things need to happen. You need to have universal school choice. Literally every single dollar follows every single child to the school of his or her parents' choice. And the second thing that needs to happen is if you do that, you don't need the U.S. Department of Education, so let's end it immediately. <laughs> I hear people applauding somewhere in the distance. I, Heritage Foundation is celebrating an anniversary this year, 50 years of being around. Uh, I want to give you a second just to give the elevator speech for the Heritage Foundation. What's the, what's the organization all about? Heritage was founded 50 years ago to save America by focusing on fiscal responsibility, personal responsibility, limited government. But ultimately, those goals, which are, which are good, aren't aims unto themselves. They are means to the ultimate aim, which is self-governance. And so what Heritage does by working literally on every policy area, we are, to my knowledge, the only conservative think tank in the world that works on literally every policy area domestic policy, foreign policy, everything in between. Which it is we, astonishingly broad when it, you consider everything. It is. Sometimes when I'm talking to my mom on Sunday night, she said, well, how do you keep up with everything that Heritage is doing? And I'm honest with her and I said, well, I don't. I have, <laughs> I have really good colleagues who help me keep up. Yeah. But the great thing about Heritage is we are willing to engage in any fight that's righteous, that where the facts are on our side, even when the, the deck may be stacked against us politically. But when we do so, even if we know the chances might, may not be great to win, we're going to do so with smiles on our faces. Because even though we're a non-sectarian group, we are animated by our Judeo-Christian beliefs. And if you step into heritage, the thing that I'm proudest of is every single person you would encounter, every single one of my colleagues would be someone you want to go have a cup of coffee with. They're great Americans. Anything else you want to share before I let you go? Look, one thing, and it's on my mind every morning when I wake up and do my morning prayer as a dad of four, husband of, of a quarter century, it feels sometimes like we're losing this country. And there's no doubt that we've lost some institutions in this country. I don't, I don't trade in hollow optimism, but I know in the fiber of my being, we're gonna reclaim this country and we're gonna reclaim it soon. We're gonna reclaim it in the 2020s. And it's going to be because people of faith, but also common, just common sense people, those of course are not mutually exclusive, <laughs> are standing up right now. And all we have to do, this is what we have to pray for, is of course, counsel discernment, but in particular, the great cardinal virtue of fortitude. 
Let us have the perseverance to engage in fight after fight after fight until we do to the radical left what they've done to us for a half century, which is to wear them down. Kevin Roberts, great chatting with you. Really enjoyed this. Thanks for what you do. It's a real pleasure and, uh, and a privilege. If you're enjoying our special summer series, look for more Leading the Way episodes on FirstLibertyLive.com. First Liberty Institute is a nonprofit legal organization that focuses exclusively on religious freedom cases. If that resonates with you, go to FirstLibertyLive.com and look for the big red give button. First Liberty is fighting for what matters most.